By now, we've seen that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has some of the largest and furthest reaching ramifications from food to economy to energy. This has hit every corner of the world. Yet every country has different pressures, different ambitions, and different relationships with Russia, Ukraine, and the West. In Southeast Asia, these ambitions and concerns are probably at the most disparate from country to country. It might seem strange that an area so geographically and culturally removed from the war has to even think twice about it. But Western-dominated international institutions and the economic realities of war mean that these regions can't simply ignore what is happening. It's important to study their reactions. Otherwise, we're at risk of being in a kind of Western echo chamber, where we just hear the same views repeated again and again. In this episode, we'll be looking at how the war in Ukraine plays into their domestic politics, what we can learn from the country's reactions, and what we can learn about the future of multilateral politics. Welcome to Undercurrents, War in Ukraine, a special edition of Chatterhouse's podcast. I'm Ned Sedgwick. First up, we'll be looking at India, economically still far off China or the US, but with a growing international confidence, personified by its controversial leader, Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Modi's meeting with Sergei Lavrov on the 1st of April and their abstention from condemning Russia's invasion has been greeted by some in the West as tacit support. But I want to look at the reasons behind these decisions and how the relationship actually works. I'm uh, Dr. Shruti Kapila. Uh, I'm an associate professor of history uh, at the University of Cambridge. So Shruti, is Russia and India's close relationship a recent one, or is that a mischaracterization of their ties? Well, it's a total mischaracterization of the ties. This is one of the oldest uh, friendships that India has had. It even predates in some ways um, India's independence because India's founding uh, prime minister, Nehru, uh, had, of course, you know, looked at the Soviet Union and when he had actually planned the economy when India became free. So, you know, going 75 years down the road, um, you know, this has been a relationship uh, for with Russia, even post-Soviet Union, uh, which has been steadfast. It has primarily been in the defense and technical, but also energy uh, relationship. But quite apart from that, also a kind of um, solidarity, if I may say, or being on the same page over a large number of strategic issues over the decades. So this is a really long-standing, it's not just a relationship, uh, it's, it's a friendship. Uh, and it's interesting that over the last 10, 15 years, uh, the big change in Indian foreign policy and Indian positioning has indeed been India's uh, quite uh, clear, open, I wouldn't say embrace, but ties becoming much more closer with the Americans. Uh, uh, and so in some ways, the, the new context for the Russian friendship is twofold. Uh, one is India's now decidedly uh, pro or kind of moving towards America. And the other is also in that same period, uh, your listeners would know, this is also the, the time when China has risen uh, as a contender for, for, for global supremacy. So India is kind of navigating China and America while kind of ensuring that its relationship with Russia uh, doesn't get too altered in, these new, in this new scenario. That's really interesting because I think the picture we've been painted in the West is that India is kind of one of Russia's strategic allies. They support uh, Russia. 
Um, but actually, they they didn't vote to support. They voted. They abstained the UN resolution criticizing Russia. How has that been read in India? How has that abstention been read? Has it has it been widely supported? Uh, yes, I think uh, uh, at a kind of very popular level, at the level of popular culture and popular sentiment, uh, Russia remains. Uh, very significant for the Indian mind. Uh, And I think uh, there are two things I'm going to have to unpack here. One is the popular perception, and the other is the strategic uh, changing of the map, both in India and globally. So on the popular side, yes, I mean, you know, there was a kind of consensus uh, across party politics in India for the abstention. Now, the abstention could be explained as a continuation of the non-alignment that I mentioned, but actually it isn't really that. It is actually a much more strategic pause on India's uh, part, precisely because it uh, it offers India a strategic opportunity to reset its relationship with China uh, on the one side, uh, as well as I think to to kind of have a kind of greater bargaining power uh, with the Americans. What has been the reaction within India towards the kind of plight of the Ukrainian people? Well, I think. I mean, at this human level, I'm sure there is sympathy. Uh, uh, but uh, I think uh, initially, if you recall, when uh, when India abstained, uh, India witnessed and Prime Minister Modi witnessed a flurry of all sorts of Western diplomats and senior Western leadership, uh, and indeed, including China, again, knocking on Delhi's door. Uh, and, you know, there were a large number of visits. And uh, it was interesting that Prime Minister Modi at that point uh, primarily initially only met uh the Russian, uh, the Russian uh, delegate, the Russian representative, uh, and the Ukraine story is uh, interesting because at, when the war started, the concern was for the you know ten, tens of thousands of Indian students uh, who studied primarily medicine and science in in Ukraine were caught up there and how to evacuate them. That was prime prime concern. Second concern is that, you know, again, to give a brief background, Ukraine has not really supported India in the UNGA, you know, particularly on Kashmir. Uh, So India can, in a way, was, I wouldn't say cautious, but it didn't kind of leap into condemning uh, the war. Uh, And I don't think it was just about Kashmir. It was actually a lot to do with uh, with its relationship, as I said, with, with Russia. So. I think, um, and then subsequently, of course, Prime Minister Modi tried to fashion himself as an honest broker of peace between these two warring uh, nations, um, Ukraine and uh, and uh, uh, and Russia, saying, well, you know, India is in a good position because it has good faith relationships with both these uh, with warring nations, and therefore tried to kind of situate himself. And I don't think it went very far, but you know, he tried to kind of set out that image. Uh, of a broker, an honest broker between these two, precisely because of these historic ties uh, that that exist between India and Ukraine, but also India and Russia. What is Modi's personal relationship with Putin like? In some ways, you can draw comparisons. I don't want to make too much of a point of this because of the way they've both come to power is completely different. But there are there are comparisons to be made if if you're looking for them. There is a definite reckoning, uh, certainly in Indian uh, commentary, but also very much hinted in your question, that these strong men who have, uh, you know, acquired power in the last decade or so, uh, uh, you know, whether it is Putin, whether it's Bolsonaro, uh, earlier Trump, 
uh, but certainly Modi, Prime Minister Modi, because he's right there, you know, in power since uh, since uh, 20, uh, 2014. Um, you know, in, they tend to reinforce each other, mm-hmm. even if their own, you know, their, their rise to power, as you rightly point out, might be very different. Modi's rise to power is, you know, a democratic one initial, you know, certainly you know, it's an election one, not once, but twice. Uh, but uh, as a kind of his, his, his performance of power, his performance of authority is neo-nationalist, exclusivist, and is very much in sync with what Gideon Rackman has called, you know, the age of the strong man. And so, one, so this is precisely why it is difficult, of, at least for me as an academic, uh, to say that this is just a continuation of India's non-alignment. It's actually something else. I think, you know, there's a new world order uh, that is being made as we speak. I feel there's an element of patronising coverage when it comes to India's response. The changing face of the non-aligned movement is fascinating too. Perhaps an insight into the fact that the superpowers it was created to counterbalance are no longer the superpowers the world needs to be concerned with. China, of course, has replaced Russia. Another populous but politically, nationally and culturally diverse region is Southeast Asia. I want to see if there are any correlations between their response and India. After all, China looms just as large in that region as any other. I spoke with Chatham House's Director of Asia Pacific Programme, Ben Bland. Ben, you lived in Southeast Asia for years, didn't you? Yeah, I, I studied Southeast Asia. I lived in Southeast Asia. I worked on Southeast Asia, Asia when I was living in Australia. So I spent m- most of my adult life living or working on the region. It must have changed enormously through COVID, very strict responses across Southeast Asia. But this crisis has kind of come at a strange time to the Russian invasion of Ukraine across Southeast Asia. We've seen a very diverse range of responses, which I think reflects the diversity of the region, Southeast Asia, um, has a regional organization, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. It has more than 600 million people, 10 countries, and every kind of conceivable government system from an absolute monarchy, the Sultanate of Brunei, to thriving democracies like Indonesia and the Philippines, and very different interests. So um, at one extreme, um, we've seen Singapore, which I think has been far and away the most outspoken Southeast Asian nation against Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's brought in financial sanctions against Russia, I think, for the first time in Singapore's history against any country uh, and stood up firmly at the UN um, in support of Ukraine and the principle of, of territorial integrity and sovereignty. At the other extreme, we have countries like Myanmar and, and Vietnam, which have deep military relationships and in Vietnam's case, historical relationships with Russia, and they've basically been abstaining or voting against some of the key resolutions of the UN because they want to protect their relationships with Russia. Plus, in the middle, a range of other countries like Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, where maybe they don't like to see what's happening in Ukraine. They don't like that big powers can push smaller powers around, but yet they're wary of being too close to the West they're wary of upsetting their relationships with Russia, which are maybe not as extensive as Vietnam, uh, but still quite important in parts of the arms industry and the natural resources industry as well. I'm really interested in Indonesia because Indonesia represents a kind of strange fusion of, of, well, it's kind of unique in its geography as well as anything else. And in a way, it, it is a kind of superpower, almost 
imperial and its multinationalism and kind of reach. And uh, I think the Timorese would would probably, the East Timorese might argue that they, the Indonesians don't mind so much about a small power being pushed around by a big power. But for Indonesia, what has the government's response been? Has it been very anti-Russian? Indonesia is a really important country. It's currently the chair, the president of the G20, uh, which brings its own complications. Next year, it's going to be chairing ASEAN, the regional organization. Um, and it's the world's fourth biggest country, third biggest democracy, the most populous Muslim majority country in the world. I think the Indonesian government response has been pretty tepid. Um, so they've signed on to some of the, the broader UN resolutions uh, when at the General Assembly when there's weight in numbers. But in terms of their own national statements, they've been very restrained. They've called for kind of peace uh, for all sides to take, you know, steps to, to move towards peace. They've sort of spoken out in general against any breaches of international law or territorial integrity, but they haven't vociferously criticized or condemned Russia or, or the Russian invasion. And I think this speaks to a couple of main points. I think the first is Indonesia's desire to keep a kind of equidistant from, from the major powers in the world and a desire not to bandwagon with, with the West, with China, um, and to keep their options open. And I think there's a, a fear in Indonesia that if they were more outspoken against Russia, it would naturally push them more towards the West, which they're wary of um, for various reasons. I think the other element here is some of the, the direct relationships. So Indonesia does buy a small but not insignificant proportion of its weapons from Russia, uh, including military aircraft and, and other things. There's a number of key oil and gas projects with Russian companies. And Indonesia's president, Joko Widodo, is very focused on economic development issues. So he's wary of anything that might upset some of these projects. So there's a, a combination of kind of Indonesia's history of, of non-alignment and trying to keep a neutral position added on to some, some specific issues the Indonesian government wants to protect, which overall means their response has been rather meek. Um, and I think the other issue is that they want to protect if they can, but it's difficult, the G20. So they were hoping that you know the invasion would be you know, gone by the time the G20 meeting is held in Bali later this year, in, in whatever way, um, that it wouldn't need to boycotts of Western leaders um, because they want to have a nice meeting where everyone can sit around the table and talk about investment and trade and COVID recovery. That's not very feasible, of course, in the world that we're in. And I think it speaks to a, a bit of the... A lack of realism, I think, in terms of the way Indonesia is engaged on this issue. But we do have to understand that these currents of, of not wanting to align with anyone are pretty deep-seated in Indonesian foreign policy. And they do have kind of understandable historical reasons, even if it's harder from a Western perspective today, to understand why Indonesia is reacting like that. Indonesia, you know, as we said, is also a democracy. And so it matters potentially more what the public think there because they can vote someone out if they don't agree with them. What has been the public's response to the war? This is a really interesting question. I mean, I think even, frankly, in authoritarian regimes, public opinion matters because autocratic leaders still need to try and do things that are within the acceptable window of options that the public can live with, but even more so, as you say, in a democracy. But the important thing to understand about Indonesia, and I think it probably goes for a lot of democracies in the developing world, is while people are proud of their own democracy, it doesn't mean they see the world in black and white, good versus bad, 
democratic versus authoritarian terms, which is how we in the UK and America tend to see things. And that actually with some colleagues did a big public opinion poll at the end of last year in Indonesia, looking at how Indonesia's 260 plus million people see the world. It was before the invasion. Um, but what came out is, is just that, that, that Indonesians are proud of their democracy, but the leaders and countries that they trust or feel warmly towards aren't necessarily democracies. Uh, we asked about you know, confidence in foreign leaders to do the right thing in world affairs. And Indonesians had more confidence in Putin to do the right thing in the world than in Scott Morrison, the then Australian prime minister, than in Narendra Modi, uh, the prime minister of, of India. Uh, he, was, he, he did worse than Biden and, and a number of other leaders, which is interesting. Um, and I think what we've seen in the Indonesian public debate since the invasion reflects some of that tension. So there are quite a lot of people who see, see things in terms of the West versus the rest, and therefore that the West is to blame for what's happening. Uh, and it, you ex people should not be surprised that there's a conflict because they think the West has antagonized Russia because they think the West has antagonized Indonesia in the past, which, well, on occasions it has. So there is that narrative in the media and in the public debate. But there are also people who are pretty concerned, who can see that this is basically a large power bullying a smaller power around. And that does have really negative implications for Indonesia, which you know, lives in a region where there's one huge emerging power spending a lot of money on military expansion in China, you know, that potentially might be bumping up against its neighbors um, and countries, including Indonesia, in the decades ahead. So I think there is a vibrant public debate in Indonesia, but it's framed in a much more divisive way than what we would see in, in Europe, in America, where there's much more clear-cut public support for governments standing up against Russia. I think in, in Indonesia, it's a much more complicated picture. Ben mentioned one country that, that slipped out of the headlines recently, Myanmar. It's probably accurate to describe it as a pariah at the moment, and it's kind of a, a type of country that we've not really discussed so far. It doesn't care about its place in the international world order. And the Myanmar armed forces have caused some of the worst humanitarian and refugee crises in modern history, armed by Russia. We've spoken a lot about states wanting to toe the line, but I want to understand how the war has played with a government with no interest in economic or social links with most of the outside world. I'm Hunter Marston. I'm a PhD candidate at Australian National University and an associate at Nine Dash Line. So, Hunter, we've been talking a lot about states who are kind of playing a fine balancing act between condemning Russia and not condemning Russia. Myanmar's different to that. Myanmar is already a pariah state. They don't really, the current de facto government doesn't really care about what the world thinks about it. What has Junta's reaction to the war been? Um, the military has been very supportive of Russia's line on the war, uh, has come out openly with statements of support, you know, viewing this as uh, Russia protecting its own territorial integrity and state sovereignty, um, and generally has, you know, just been simpatico with uh, the Kremlin. Is it a question of what they can benefit from doing this, or is it they just have nothing to lose? Well, they have a great deal to lose. Uh, in fact, you know, the junta tends to think now about its place in the world, uh, sort of with a mix of fatalism and, you know, grit. At this point, Russia and China matter a great deal to Myanmar. Um, and one way the junta can continue to solicit their support is by um, 
sort of kowtowing deferentially to um, their global agendas. And with China, that means signing on to Belt and Road projects and signaling interest in resuming hydropower um, and extractive industries projects, which China had stalled previously. And with Russia, that really involves signaling, you know, its, its complete support and unthinking support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And Russia's economic footprint in Myanmar is much smaller. So in some ways, it's more just about preserving options uh, to diversify against reliance on China. Russia's strategic interests in Myanmar, as they are across Southeast Asia, tend to hinge uh, on arms exports. So Russia is the second largest exporter of weapons to Myanmar. Um, and Myanmar's military, primarily its air force, are heavily reliant on Russia for those exports to continue its counterinsurgency campaigns against all of the resistance groups currently fighting its hold on the country. So what does Russia have to gain from this relationship? I mean, these pariah states like Myanmar and Eritrea voting in favor of Russia, what does that actually mean? What does that actually do in real terms? Well, I don't think it means a great deal to Russia when you know, the likes of Eritrea or Myanmar vote one way in the UN General Assembly. In some ways, Russia is competing with China for influence in Southeast Asia. Like I said, it's, it's a major exporter of arms, we- uh, weapons across the um, region of Southeast Asia, primarily to countries like Vietnam and Laos, where they have sort of old Cold War ties. But at the same time, Uh, Indonesia and Myanmar are also importing Russian weapons. And for a country like Myanmar that doesn't have a great deal of external support, uh, Russia really represents sort of an alternative to China um, who, with whom Myanmar has a very complicated historical relationship. So in the 1990s and 2000s, actually, the Myanmar military came to see reliance on China as a threat to national security. Um, And it, it, it still, I think, uh, weighs heavily on the minds of some strategic thinkers within the military. Um, and even Minong Hlaing himself, he's traveled to Russia at least seven times since his appointment as commander-in-chief in 2011. So it's pretty clear that he has invested a great deal personally in the relationship with Russia. And I think in some ways it is it serves as a hedge against this traditional dependence on China, the neighbor to the north, uh, whom actually the military is quite paranoid about and has actually envisaged, um, envisioned various uh, scenarios of invasion. Should Myanmar's legitimately elected government somehow return to power, would we see a difference in approach to Russia? Absolutely. At least what we can see from the foreign ministry of the national unity government and uh, elected representative um, and ambassador to the UN, Chia Motun, who has voted consistently for um, progressive international resolutions, such as denouncing Russia's invasion of Ukraine in March, uh, all signals indicate that um, the national unity government, which represents the elected civilian government, which the military displaced last year in the coup, would welcome international arbitration against uh, the military for crimes against the Rohingya Rohingya committed in 2017, um, and also signal uh, their interest in sort of a return to uh, Myanmar's typical proactive, open, independent, flexible foreign policy, embracing uh, Western countries and um, avoiding this reliance on Russia and China, which the junta's isolation has forced upon the country. Has there been a public wave of support uh, towards the Ukrainian people from the Myanmar public? One interesting thing on the ground is that, you know, because Ukraine actually itself uh, sent a great deal of military equipment to the Myanmar military, 
at first, in light of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there was some feeling of so what, you know, they they got what they deserve. The Ukrainians were sending us military or sending our military uh, defense um, equipment, which is now being used against Myanmar's own people. Um, but I think that's it's relatively a minority view. And by and large, the Myanmar people sympathize with Ukraine, seeing uh, the Russian military occupation as um, a, sort of, of a parallel to that launched by the, the Myanmar military against their own people. I feel this episode could be retitled Weapons in China. So crucial are those factors in thinking about all the countries we've discussed. I was tempted to include history, but the more I heard, the more I began to suspect invoking the kind of Russian-Soviet relationship with these countries is just a mask for current pragmatic decisions by governments who, in the main part, weren't in power during that period. I also feel that the West's approach, the more I hear about it, is increasingly patronising. If they changed tack and saw what Russia offered these countries, what neutrality offers these countries, it might become a little bit more convincing in their arguments. That said, something else strikes me as peculiar in the response. Again and again, it came up that Russia could be used as a counterweight to China. This reaction is predicated on early assumptions that Russia would roll over Ukraine and reassert itself as a major power. The West would be cowed, and it would just continue as it's continued in the last 10 years. This hasn't happened, and regardless of the eventual outcome of the war, Russia's fall from its world power status into an isolated regional power looks to be confirmed. I'm also beginning to see the nuances in the responses from the developing world and the global south. Next week, I'll be exploring this more when I'll be looking at how the war has impacted Africa in Latin America. Thank you for listening to this episode of Undercurrents, War in Ukraine. And thank you to Shruti, Kapila, Ben Bland and Hunter Marston. If you want to learn more about what's going on in Ukraine, head to Chatham House's website, chathamhouse.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this issue and on what aspects you want us to cover next. You can find us on all social media at Chatham House. I've been your host, Ned Sedgwick. The producer is David Dargahi, and Anouk Mie from Earshot Strategies. And thanks also to Alistair Burnett at Chatham House.